Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Wonderful to see all your shining, happy faces. Um, welcome today. We're starting a new series. So uh, we've had this vision uh, for the year. Um, this is what that vision looks like. From the throne flows a river of renewal. So our, our leaders, our elders, we gathered towards the end of last year. Uh, we kind of inquired of the Lord, like, what's, what's next? Um, where, where do you want to lead us? And um, we came back together after a time of worship and prayer. People shared uh, scriptures. They shared uh, images they felt like they were receiving from the Lord or words. And then we kind of synthesized it. And this is where we really felt like God was calling us in 2022. That, you know, all of last year we spent focused on this idea of allegiance. Like our, our full embodied faith as we follow behind Jesus as our king. So the natural trajectory was, okay, okay, so once Jesus is on the throne as our king, what happens? And so what we've been talking about this year is that that, that sense of allegiance flows to us, uh, but then it also flows through us. And so that brings us to our next series that we're starting today. For the sake of the world, uh, Hunter Bustamante Fuller follows through again with some lovely graphics. Um, so you can, you can commend her when you see her. So for the sake of the world, what we want to do in this series is really begin to turn outward, okay? So we spent all this time in allegiance um, through this last part of the series, centering on Jesus. We were really looking at the Old Testament and how we find the pre-incarnate Christ through all of these different images in the Old Testament. Uh, and now we want to begin to pivot and say, okay, so what does this mean for the rest? How do we turn outward? Because there comes a point I think where we're saturated as disciples of Jesus, where it's about what we're receiving and, and, and what we're, we're uh, perceiving of him, but then he actually calls us to kind of pivot and to begin to contribute to the work of his kingdom. And so that's what we're gonna be doing uh, over the next three months. Uh, today, I kinda wanna give a really broad picture of where we're headed, um, honing in on one particular passage of scripture that I, I really adore. So I'm gonna pray, and we'll just see what the Lord has for us today, okay? You with me? Sure. Hey, if you're not, there's the door, buddy. I was looking at Marshall. You're good. He's the one that I'm always worried about. You know, he's just gonna, just gonna bail at some point on me. I have major abandonment issues, obviously, being a pastor. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here and that you're with us. Um, that you are a God who turns curses into blessings. And that's as true of us personally as it is for uh, all of history. That's what your sovereignty means, Lord. That's, what you're, that's how we see your power. It's not that you're some sort of divine chess master um, that's already preordained every move that we make, but that you are so very close to us and alongside of us, and you have this amazing, amazing ability to take things that are meant for our death. And instead... Uh, to, to pivot them so it brings us to new life, uh, resurrection life in you. And that's what we celebrate in this season, in this Easter time, um, that we are new creation people. Um, 
and even though for many of us it's really it feels like a foreign land and we don't feel like we kind of speak the language very well or know all the customs uh, you have still brought us into this new world this new creation you're doing something in each one of us through the spirit of jesus to transform us to look more and more like him day by day so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So today we're going to be looking uh, at a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that I feel like really uh, hones us in on what the overall vision for this, uh, this series is going to be. So it's going to be up on the screen. Um, you can follow along in your pew Bibles if we had those. Um, we're going to be using a translation today called the New Testament for Everyone translation. Uh, I think for a lot of us, you know, when we, when, especially if we, how many of you grew up in church? Like you're, you're a church kid through and through. Okay, great. You went to Acquire the Fire and Newsboys, et cetera, et cetera. You, did anybody have the poster that was like, if you like 311, you'll love this band. If you like Limp Biscuit, you'll love this band. Anybody else? Just me? Cool. Um, so a lot of times uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a phrase that's kind of shown up kind of throughout history, it says familiarity breeds unfamiliarity and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. And so a lot of times uh, when we're so, fam- like we, we think that we know what something says, uh, so we kind of glaze over it. And I think that happens for a lot of us when it comes to specifically to the Bible, um, but by and large in the Christian faith itself that we, uh, we're so convinced that we know what it says that we don't actually know what it says. Uh, and that's where the contempt comes. And I think that, you know, even in this series, as we're talking more about like our position to the world, one of the things we're going to talk about a lot is what does it look like for our country to steadily become a truly post-Christian society where everybody's so, so vaguely familiar with the message of Jesus that they're actually potentially contemptuous of it, um, that we're not, we're not, you know, reaching the unreached peoples per se. And like, people don't know the story of Jesus is like, it's familiar enough that people don't feel like there's really much there for them. Um, but I think that has to begin with us in church. So many of us, we're, we've grown up in it. We're so familiar with the story and with the scriptures uh, that we just miss it entirely. So I think it's really nice when we read passages of scripture through different translations, because it can kind of bring things to life for us in new ways and kind of keep, uh, allow the word to be a living word. That's the phrase I really like for it. It's, it's a living word because it continues to breathe new life into us as we open ourselves up. So I encourage you, um, even in your own uh, scripture reading, in your community groups or whatever, pivot around to a few different uh, translations of scripture, because I think it really helps us uh, to keep it fresh. So we're going to be looking today at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So a little bit of a background. Um, Corinth was this really uh, hustling and, and bustling trade city. It's kind of on the eastern shore of Greece. So it was almost this meeting point of east and west. So it's right across the water from Turkey and Asia. Um, it's kind of the entry point into Greece and then Rome and beyond. So you see this conflation of all of these different cultures. It was a very, it was a big city for its day. Um, there was a lot of money in trade and commerce. So culturally speaking, Corinth is kind of all over the place. It's definitely a polyculture. 
There's a lot of different religions, a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different socioeconomic statuses. And so I think even there, there's something really interesting. The way we can incline our ear to how Paul speaks to the Corinthians might be how he's speaking to 21st century Orlandoans, because we can potentially see ourselves in, uh, in that picture. Did you know that this is now the least affordable place in the United States to live? Yes. We did it! <laughs> Try buying a house, geez. Um, but I love that, like what Paul is trying to do for the church in Corinth is he's trying to get people from all of these disparate walks of life on the same page. That was, that was the real problem. And if you know the, the letter of 1 Corinthians, the struggle they were having was especially between the rich and the poor. Um, and, and, and they were ranking according to like spiritual gifts. So there's all of this disparity in it and these horrible hierarchies that Paul's saying, no, God has like, dis like taken apart all of those hierarchical notions of who's in and who's out and who's favored and who's not. And we're all brought into this thing together. So um, he writes that letter of rebuke in 1 Corinthians. And then he, we have a second letter called 2 Corinthians. Excellent name. And um, basically like, He's seen some of the change that he needs to see in their behavior to one another. So he affirms them and he's like, great job. But one of the things that started to happen uh, was that these other people, these, these, uh, these so-called super apostles were coming into cities like Corinth and they're saying, okay, so Paul, um, he, you know, kind of gave you like half a gospel, but there's really more things that you need to do. And they began to question Paul's authority. So even though it devastates them to do so, Paul feels compelled to write them a letter to explain, this is why I have the authority that I have. And one of the things that was especially hard for the Corinthians was that Paul's life didn't look like the kind of life that you would expect for a powerful leader. Um, he was suffering all the time. He was beaten up all the time. He was practically homeless. He was traveling around. So like you and I, he would look at this guy. Uh, he was probably also hunchbacked and had a lisp. So like, there's just nothing about this guy that makes him a good leader. Um, and because of their, their cultural orientation, they're like, well, I don't know. Maybe he's not worth listening to. So he has to write this letter to say, let me explain to you why my devotion to King Jesus, to this new reality of God that we call the kingdom of heaven, makes my life look the way that it does. And he really begins to challenge in them in this second letter, some of the assumptions of what they think the Christian life is about. And I think that that sets us up rather beautifully um, to, to enter into this series. So um, 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to break it down uh, verses 11 to 15, and then we're going to look at 16 to 21. So we know the fear of the Lord, and that's why we are pursue, persuading people. But we're open to God, and open as well, I hope, to your consciences. We aren't trying to recommend ourselves again. We're giving you a chance to be proud of us, to have something to say to those who take pride in appearances rather than people's hearts. If we are beside ourselves, you see, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the Messiah's love makes us press on. We have come to the conviction that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all in order that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised on their behalf. 
So there's a couple really key phrases um, in this little portion. Number one, that he begins by speaking about, we know the fear of the Lord. What does he mean about that? You're probably very familiar with it, that we say it's about kind of the awe and the power, the recognition of the power of God, that there's something about um, who God is that really should make us sit up and take note. And I think for a lot of us, I think it's been a net positive over several generations or like every several decades that we've really come to the closeness and the familiarity of God. We speak of Jesus as a, as a friend, um, but that should never be at the expense of the awe and the power of God. And I think it's always really hard to kind of um, marry these visions of God that we have uh, and to hold them in this creative tension. But I think that that's part of the work of maturity is that you're able to allow God to be God, which means bringing in all of these different images of what God is like and holding them in attention, even if sometimes they feel like uh, a little uncomfortable. But when we live out of the fear of God that, that Paul is speaking of, it diminishes our need uh, to live by other standards. We are not as desperate to impress um, our peers, the people around us. We're not as desperate to fall in line with certain political ideologies or certain tribal notions of who's in and who's out. Whenever we have that fear of the Lord that wakes us up to the bigness of what God is really like, um, that becomes our new standard and everything else begins to submit to it. And so that's what Paul is talking about in, that, in uh, the next thing that he says. Um, we, want it, we want it giving you a chance to be proud of us, to have something to say to those who take pride in appearances rather than in people's hearts. Or in the NIV, it says to take pride in what is seen. And what he's talking about here is, is something that I think was very pervasive in Corinth, and I think it's very pervasive in Orlando, is that we have this tendency uh, to judge people uh, over their behavior, their outward appearances. We look at the surface of who somebody is, and we judge their value by that ba rather than upon their intentions and their motivations, which are very tricky things to discern. Now, that might be terribly surface things. We judge people by the way that they dress or how nice their hair looks or the color of their skin or what kind of car they drive or who they voted for or who they love. Or you can, you know, you can just imagine, you can continue to place out the line after line after line where we are judging by surface appearance. And I, I think it's, it's one of those things that just we carry through us in the human story. We start from a very young age uh, doing that, like having prejudice and, and discerning who is in, who's out, who's favorable, who's unfavorable from a very young age. And it's annoying when you're five, uh, when you're 30, it can be deadly to live that way, to be caught up in all of these very surface readings, these uh, judging people based on their appearance or what you, it seems to be is happening rather than that ability uh, to know what's in people's hearts. And that, I think, becomes the pivot for the Corinthians, why they struggled with the way that Paul lived their lives, because they're looking at the appearance of his life as this poor, hunchbacked, lispy guy um, who's constantly being beaten up and he's in jail and all of these, like, it's just, there's nothing about this guy that seems like he's the sort of person you would want to follow. Um, studies have shown that um, politicians who are more handsome do better. That says something very clear about our society. I mean, obviously that applies to pastors too. Like, you know, like the better looking we are, uh, the more people listen to us. 
Um, which is why I'm wearing these shoes today. These are my preaching <laughs> shoes. Thank you. I, did, I didn't even buff them today. Um, I think that's the Shekinah glory just coming off of them. Um, so that's the problem that they have with Paul. They're like, you're not, you're not handsome. You're not a great speaker. Your letters are super confusing. <laughs> you know, and so that's what he's saying. He's like, okay, if we're beside ourselves or if we're out of our mind, like if, if the way we live our life looks crazy, it's because we are so dedicated uh, to God. It is because our allegiance is to King Jesus. And sometimes that means that our life looks totally out of the norm. And he says, and if we're in our right mind, it's for you. If anything we're saying makes sense, it's because we're doing everything we can to minister to your hearts, to see you encounter the love of God. So Paul's life looks crazy to these people but it's because he is so wonderfully free from peer pressure. Wouldn't that be nice? Just to not be so concerned what other people think about you and to be so dedicated to what you think a meaningful life is that you just pursue that? Wow. That would be something. That almost sounds like deliverance. You know, that almost sounds like salvation. But I think this is why he's so powerful. He says, for the Messiah's love makes us press on. Or in the NIV, it says, Christ's love compels us. Because as new creation people, we are compelled to live by sacrificial love. This is what we've been looking at kind of through the passion narrative of Christ through Easter, is that we're being reoriented uh, to this vision of sacrificial love that we have in Jesus. That's what motivates us as new creation people. That's where our allegiances shift from surface appearances, from tribalistic notions uh, that we find within the human narrative where we're made to compete with one another. And we're kind of delivered from that. And our new standard is the love of Christ, which is sacrificial love. Like that is the Christ pattern to be uh, self-emptied for the sake of the world. And I think... This touches so profoundly with where we're at right now that I think the era we live in is plagued by this notion of behavior modification. I think that, you know, talking about like judging by the surface appearance, this is where the vitriol in our own country, this is where it's come from, is that we are so convinced of the surface appearance of other human beings. And all we're trying to do is behavior modification. I've been thinking about ethics a lot the past few weeks. Lan and I are recording a couple podcast episodes about ethics, like Christian ethics and universal ethics and all these things. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot is like, we're in an era in our country, our only solution to ethics is legislation. That's all we know what to do anymore. Like, I'm just going to, in, like, I'm going to impose my morals, my beliefs on you through legislation until the next person comes in and then they're just going to undo all that legislation. And then we just go back and forth. And so that's, that's the best thing that we know how to do. We don't actually know how to pierce through to a person's heart. We don't talk about transformation of, of a person on the deepest level, like virtue. That, that is a completely lost message in our modern era. Alistair McIntyre, who's a, um, a Catholic ethicist, speaks how we're in the era of moral fragmentation. And what he means by this 
is that we have all of these kind of surface behavior modification mandates that are the remnants of the stories that we used to live that have all rotted out from the inside. So we, we have these things that we think we're supposed to do, but we don't have the common stories behind them that were the very reason that we were supposed to do that. That even as Americans, let alone as Westerners, we have no unifying story. So Lan and I have been talking a lot about that ethics is about the pursuit of well-being for the individual or the well-being for us, which sounds great, but as soon as you get into the specifics, that falls apart. So look at some of the things that we're fighting about in our current country, whether it's trans rights, whether it's guns, whether it's abortion, whether or not it's that Disney should have whatever legislation, you know, all these different things that we're fighting, the really important things in life, right? We have, like, as soon as you start talking about what well-being is, like, what does it mean to live a good life? We're all in complete disagreement because we're not even living out of common stories. And I've said it several times before that a lot of the ethical arguments we have, they're positioned from radically different assumptions about what life is even about. And because we're so addicted to consumerism and marketing, we brand our positions in a way that we don't actually reflect on those positions to know why we even believe what we believe. Amen. The classic one being pro-choice or pro-life. Well, my God, those are two completely different conversations that have different baked-in assumptions. And so all we're doing is we're just talking across each other. The other one that drives me crazy is, you know, specifically with churches, are you affirming or non-affirming? Of what, how, when, what are, what, are the, what are the things inside of that thing that you're assuming? Because it's, all, it's just about casting ideologies and, and drawing lines around people. And it's not about actually getting to know people and being on a journey with them. And I think we do not realize how desperately lost our culture is because we do not have any sense of unifying story. And I think that that's actually why there's an opportunity for us as Christians to reclaim the central narrative of what we believe. And, and secondly, not to cast that upon people who don't claim that story. Not to legislate our own morality over people who do not claim Christ. There's an opportunity for us to regather as the people of God, as the church, and to live in such a radically way that we provide the world with an alternative vision of what it means to be human. And so for us as Christians, we do what we do because we believe about the deepest part of ourselves. As we were just singing that we are the beloved of God, we believe that is the core of our identity. And so our lives become about trying to faithfully embody Christ's love. Our, our ethics are formed by embodying that narrative of the Christ who lived, died, and was resurrected. And that's a very different way of doing ethics than what we have inherited. But we believe, as Christians, we're compelled to live according to that sacrificial love of Christ. And sometimes that looks crazy. And sometimes that looks like you and I don't fit into convenient categories of left or right or progressive or conservative or whatever it might be. It means that we just seem a little bit too slippery because we're living to a higher standard. And then the question becomes, where do we come from? 
And where are we headed if we are living out this narrative as Christians, as little Christs? How does that shape our lifestyle? And how does that shape our ethical approach to the world? And so Paul continues in 2 Corinthians in verse 16. From this moment on, therefore, we don't regard anybody from a merely human point of view. Even if we once regarded the Messiah that way, we don't do so any longer. Thus, if anyone is in the Messiah, there is a new creation. Old things have gone, and look, everything has become new. It all comes from God. He reconciled to himself, us to himself through the Messiah, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is how it came about. Paul was reconciling the world to himself in the Messiah, not counting their transgressions against them and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors speaking on behalf of the Messiah as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore people on the Messiah's behalf to be reconciled to God. The Messiah did not know sin, but God made him to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might embody God's faithfulness to the covenant. So Paul starts off saying, now we regard no one from a human point of view. What does it mean for him when he says we do not regard somebody from a human point of view? He means that we project onto other people stories and narratives that categorize and then dehumanize. This is what we do. We categorize people and then we dehumanize them. It's the history of racism, it's the history of sexism, all of the isms, this is what you do. You categorize somebody as them over there, the other, and then you dehumanize them that somehow they're not as worthy as you are of a seat at the table. Because, and the other thing that we find in our modern society, there's, well, there's only enough to go around. So there's not a seat at the table for those people over there. So we demonize the, the other, the scary other, maybe it's immigrants or it's women or whatever it is, like you're given a boogeyman or boogeywoman, let's, it's 21st century. <laughs> um, but you're told a story about them that actually makes them, like a human point of view that he's talking about is to dehumanize people. That's the irony of what he's talking about. And, and Paul knew this story very well because when he was Saul, you know, when he was this Pharisee of Pharisees that he talks about in his own story, in his testimony, he went about murdering Christians because he was convinced that's what the Bible told him to do. You see, Paul was very devoted to God. He was very devoted to the Bible. And he read the Bible, and the Bible told him that God wants to, to get rid of all of the heretics. And he said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take up the sword in the name of my God because he's on my side. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to fight the bad guys who are giving God a bad name as if God needs to be defended. He's this radical encounter where he is completely transformed. Literally, he's, he's made blind. I think to be realized he had always been blind, but he didn't know it. He's this radical encounter with Jesus. He's nursed back to health by the very people who he was terrorizing. You know, Paul was a terrorist by our definition of the word. He went around, like, can you imagine if like, you know, this is a little antiquated for some of you kids, but Osama bin Laden just came over and was just like, hey, I've had a change of heart. Uh, we'd be like, I don't, I'm, I don't, I don't know about this, guys. I'm not so sure. You know, like there was this story that Saul had been living out of that categorized and then dehumanized these followers of the way of Jesus, that they were heretics, 
that, that we need to purge the religion to get rid of them. And it's such a radical encounter. So when he says we now no longer regard people from a human point of view, he's talking from his own experience. And he says this all comes from God. And then he says that God reconciled us to him through the Messiah. But then he says, now we have this ministry of reconciliation. And what does reconciliation mean? The word literally means to be made friends again. That's what reconciliation means. When we talk about someone being very conciliatory, we're saying they're very friendly. So to be made friends again. And the first move, that first reconciliation, that first peace is between God and humanity, that we have been reconciled back to God through the Messiah. But then the second thing becomes about us being the ministers of reconciliation. So reconciliation actually flows through us, where now all of those normal stories about who we have categorized and dehumanized, all those stories begin to fall away and we find a second piece that now humanity is being woven back together in this new narrative, which is why the church, this is going to shock some of you, is supposed to be the place where none of those dividing walls of hostility any, any longer apply. The church should not have racism in it or sexism or any of the isms. Like we should not be judging one another by who we vote for or what our opinion is on this, that, or the other cultural uh, story that's happening. Like this is the place where God is forming a new family out of strangers. And this ministry of reconciliation that we've been given is to go out into the world and to welcome others into this new radical uh, vision for humanity. But the, the interesting thing here, I think, is that the world is reconciled to God and not the other way around, okay? The world is reconciled to God. We don't reconcile God to the world. And I think this is one of the major problems that we've had um, with what we call evangelism. Um, we try to make God relevant to what's happening in culture. So we look at what's happening in culture and we say, where can we fit God in there? And we just interject God into different things. And we try to make like a, a, like a cooler or more interesting version of that. And I think that that's the problem. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But Paul, talking about this ministry of reconciliation, is saying, no, we're reconciling the world back to God and that we are Christ's ambassadors. And an ambassador, if you know, is someone who lives in a foreign country um, who kind of has the stamp of approval of their sending government to, to be an emissary, to be like kind of the demon, like to speak on behalf of the king, right? That's what an ambassador does. Um, they live in another country. Um, they are friendly and they engage with the surrounding people. They engage with the surrounding emissaries and other ambassadors and like whoever the, the leaders are of that country where they live. Um, but their true citizenship is somewhere else. And they've been granted this amazing responsibility to speak on behalf of their sending leadership. So we have ambassadors all over the country. They speak on behalf of the United States government. Um, and that's, that's your job. Like, that's your vocation. That's what you're called to as a Christian. It's not who you are. Who you are is that you are the beloved of God. But your vocation, your purpose, is you are an ambassador of the Messiah that you now live in a foreign land, even if that foreign land is Kissimmee. <laughs> and you speak on behalf 
of the king of the universe. Like that's your job. Like you've been appointed to this lifelong position as an ambassador of heaven itself. And you get to speak on behalf of the king to the locals. Because you know what they, you know the locals' language. You know how to, you know how to engage with them. You know, like, you know their language. You know their customs. You've, you've studied them for years. <laughs> but you get to speak on behalf of the king. And I think this is where historically evangelism has got this wrong. Because what we've seen uh, happen uh, a lot, especially kind of through the colonial period, is that Christianity was imposed in foreign lands. And it was, and it was applied to other cultures um, that were, were coming in in the name of, of Jesus and were establishing the kingdom of heaven. But what they were really establishing was a European sense of what the church was. And that it was used uh, as an institution in order to control people. I was having a great conversation with, with Pastor Shav earlier this week, and we are talking about um, kind of in the Latino community, the relationship with the Catholic Church and how that's quite different uh, than it is uh, like an Anglo relationship with the Catholic Church. Because in Latin America, Catholicism, by and large, was something that was imposed colonially upon um, the, the native-speaking people. Um, and they were taking up a very specifically European version of Catholicism. And it's been, and it's taking, you know, decades, it's taking centuries to, to kind of, to undo some of that mentality uh, of what that version of religion does, as opposed to like in, in my homeland, in, in Ireland, where um, at its best, um, you know, Patrick and these other missionaries coming to the Irish went in and began to bless where they saw already the evidence of Christ within the Celtic people. And it became actually this different, this, this new expression of the Christian faith that arose out of the Celtic traditions themselves. And so we have these two kind of competing visions of evangelism and missions. But like I said, one of the biggest problems that we have is that we try to reconcile God to the world. And when we do that, we become colonial. We, we just go in and then we try to impose a Christian vision of things. We try to find a place to make God relevant to what's happening in society. And I think that has been the great failing of the past 100 years because following Jesus isn't cool or is it relevant for us to be the church is to provide a radical alternative to the world that just might save it. And I think this is what Paul means when Paul says new creation. That we are, there's something new happening in the world. Something, something new reality is breaking forth in the midst of the old ones. Speaking of being cool, I used to be in a band. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> Cole, Cole's band and my band actually played together like, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago or something, which is wild. That's the first time I met him. But um, we, were, we were on tour with this band called Cool Hand Luke, which were fantastic. They were so good. And um, Mark, who's, who's kind of the singer, main songwriter in that band, like uh, he's amazing powers. He's actually a Presbyterian minister now um, up in Longwood. But I remember that we, we did this tour together, and I think we were in, like, Michigan or something, and, and he, they're going through their set, he's starting to play, and then he just stops, and he gets real quiet. And he just, like, looks at everybody, and he goes, and he's from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, he goes, y'all, Jesus isn't cool. <laughs> we're like, what? He's like, yeah, 
He's like, Jesus isn't particularly cool, man. He's like, I feel like we're always just trying to make Jesus cool, but he's not. He's better than that. And it was like, you know, for 23-year-old me, it was a revelation because like literally everything about my life was about being cool. I'm at 38 and I'm still trying to get over that, you know? And I realized, oh my gosh, like we have an entire industry of Christianity, specifically evangelical Christianity, that is so desperate to make Jesus cool and relevant, which means that we look at the world and we look at what the world is doing, and then we try to come in and we try to do what they're doing, but better. But guess what? It's never, like, it's not better. Like, we don't make better movies. We definitely don't make better music. Like, we're not good at these things when we try to be cool. But there's a problem there because what happens is that we dilute this awesome, awesome vision of what Jesus is actually like. And again, that's where we commodify him, we domesticate him, we try to put him in a more convenient package for people and say, hey, what do you, buddy Jesus, do you want to meet buddy Jesus? And they're like, no, he's not interesting to me. Because he isn't. Who would want to worship that? But when you encounter this radically, radically massive vision of Jesus that Paul gives us, that the gospels give us, that the historical church preaches, we recognize it, there's no need for us to find a place in society to make Jesus relevant. Like, let's enter into those conversations and just try to acclimate him to the climate there and see what happens. But it's actually for us to re reclaim this majestic vision of the God revealed in Jesus that so captures us that we leave behind these standards of being cool or being relevant or whatever it is that we've, we've lowered our sights for. And we begin to live as this alternative society that shows this is what it looks like when God regathers human beings under his loving care. And so what if we stopped trying to make Jesus fit into our surrounding culture? Because the only inevitable things that happen there are colonialism um, and religiosity where we begin to throw Bible verses out into the world and beat people over the head with these things in order to try to get them to believe what we do. And what if we gave up on that? What if we were through being cool? What if we just we didn't really bother about trying to fit into surrounding culture anymore? And we began to become devoted to, sh to showing a radical alternative uh, to the world itself. So over the next three months, that's what we're going to be exploring a little bit more. And um, I'm uh, writing a very large project right now that's specifically about helping you discover your calling. I think it's like 60 pages right now, and I'm sure it'll be more because I got a lot to say. Um, but every Friday, I'm going to release a blog on our website that's going to be a, a way for you to kind of crawl into some of this language a bit more that you're calling... Um, this, you know, we all have this common purpose as ambassadors um, or ministers of reconciliation. Um, but your calling, like your, your specific flavor of that is found when you learn how to uh, read your story with God, when you uh, kind of discern your personality through Christ and as you discover your spiritual gifts that are given to you by the Holy Spirit. And as you look at those three things, kind of your calling begins to emerge in the center of those. 
Um, and so that's going to be every Friday. I encourage you guys to follow along with that. But I'm really excited about where we're going in this series. I feel like we're ready for it. I think it's going to be uh, paradigm shifting for a lot of us. But let's stand. And we're going to enter back into worship. And I'm going to invite um, some of our leaders and elders. They're going to be on kind of either side here. Um, if you need some prayer, um, Again, maybe you just need someone to bless you. Maybe you just need someone to speak a word of goodness over you because that's what you need today. They are here to do that for you. Um, maybe you have something inside of you that, that you feel stuck. Um, you recognize that, oh gosh, maybe that vision of the Messiah has never been as compelling as I kind of feel like it maybe should be, or I've been so enslaved by this need to be cool and to be relevant because I thought that that's what God was asking of me. And you want to be set free from that? Like our leaders are going to pray for you in that as well. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite them to go ahead and move now. And we'll enter into worship and see what the Lord wants to do. Father, we thank you uh, for the insane otherworldly, uncool ministry of St. Paul. May he be to us this, this thorn in our own side, this, uh, this vision of being completely dedicated to you and your kingdom that doesn't it make sense to us, that it shakes us up that it challenges us to reassess what we're living according to. And God, I pray that over the next three months, um, as you speak and move in our community, we would recognize this profound call you have given to us to be this alternative society, to be these ministers of reconciliation that through us, you are reconciling the world back to yourself that as your ambassadors, that we are to go out into the world, even places like Kissimmee, to give people a radical encounter of your love. May we be so dedicated to our true citizenship, like where we really belong as in heaven, the, the reality of God on earth, that that begins to shape and inform and invest in us a new way of seeing the world. May we no longer see people from a merely human point of view. So Holy Spirit, would you alight upon your dear ones here this morning? We give you permission to speak and to do whatever you see fit. We pray all of this in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.